Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 3, where we explore all things sports coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. Another three excellent guests join me this week, so please could you introduce yourselves and tell us your current role. Um, Ian Davis, currently Director of Rugby at Christ Hospital School, uh, formerly Director of Rugby at Cornish Pirates. Uh, Neil Harris, um, Director of Rugby at St George's School, Harpenden, and currently USA Eagles uh, assistant coach in charge of set piece. Uh, Paul Turner, um, head coach of uh, Amter Rugby, um, former coach of, um, it's going to go on too long, this is, um, <laughs> uh, Dragons, uh, down in Wales, uh, regional side, um, and formerly of Wasps, Saracens, and Sale. And recently retired. And recently retired, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, Jen, absolute pleasure to have you all on together. Really looking forward to this. Uh, just a quick reminder for anybody listening to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to all the content we discuss and recommendations to other high quality content as well. Right, we are going to go straight into it. Ian, we are coming over to you. What is it you're going to discuss? Well, firstly, I'm disappointed, Phil. I was waiting for your cowboy joke. Uh, I've been listening to previous podcasts and the, the dreadful jokes you start with. I was, I was looking forward to that. They, they went after like season one. I kind oh, of just. No. Well, number one, I was running out of terrible jokes, um, cowboy related. I've got plenty of terrible jokes. Um, but yeah, no, they were. I thought I'd better, you know, go out on top, as they say. Okay. Um, so, yeah, thanks for inviting me on, Phil. Um, the podcast I, I listened to uh, was Dan Abrams' The Sports Psych Show, and it was how to turn a losing team into a winning team. Um, the the guy on it was Dr. Oliver Esslinger, who's the Caltech basketball coach. And it, it was really interesting, really, because he, he went into um, an environment which was the, the worst record in, in college basketball. Um, dealing with highly intelligent people but uh, struggling on the, the basketball court um, and in, that was 2008 um, and he needed to reframe the losing streak really um, so he spoke about removing the stress and anxiety um, of losing streaks we've, we've all been uh, in environment well Unfortunately, we've all been in environments where we've been on losing streaks and, and that anxiety does build, um, especially if you're the head coach. Um, people are looking at you. So how he reframed it and he was talking about having the big picture uh, and being the visionary and staying true to yourself uh, and discipline to yourself as well, where sometimes you, you think maybe you need to do something different. Uh, maybe you need to change things, but ultimately you've got to look at the, the bigger picture and, and know that you're you're on the right track and, and, and sticking with it. Um, he spoke about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, um, which is something that um, knowing in a school environment is something that um, 
it's interesting with the, with the, with the boys and trying to see what their motivation is to to play the sport and, and why they want to play rugby within the school. Um, and also then he looked at culture and, and that's a big thing. And it's a big buzzword in, in rugby, isn't it? Well, um, getting the culture right. And, and he was saying it was about the, the people, the humans and the relationships within that. Um, you can have as many buzzwords as you want up in the change rooms. And, um, but it's those relationships you have with the human beings uh, and the day to day relationships um, and how that can change mindset of people um, and links to the past. Um, he was very much of the, the thinking, hopping back a little bit to, to the book Legacy, you know, James Kerr, he was saying about um, how you, you build the foundations and keep creating new foundations year on year to, to make life easier for the people in the environment or people coming into the environment. So the hard work is is done uh, often unseen by the people who've gone before um, and the benefits of those in place, but they have to remember. Um, and that was certainly something that um, in a couple of clubs I've been at, people walking around wearing the tracksuits but hadn't done the hard graft to, to get there and then forgetting sometimes that what's gone before um, so, so it was really interesting, really, to uh, the way that he took winning out of it and then became very successful with the winning uh, based on reducing anxiety and building that culture. Fantastic. Thanks, Ian. I, I love that. I think, yeah, maybe we talk about winning quite a lot in sport, but actually not so much about how you deal with losing, um, which that's that's a really nice kind of alternative take. So I... I I guess my first question is: Do you, do you think we make too much of a big deal of winning? Like it's clearly it's clearly what people want to do, but this example would suggest if you focus less on winning, you're you're more likely to win. So do 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 from your experience in your environments or other environments you've seen, do you think if it becomes front and center of everything, it, it becomes unmanageable? And are, are there better ways, maybe like this, talks through to to achieve more success? Um, yeah, I think the other guys will agree as well that winning is important because it keeps you in your job and it pay, pays the bills and, and allows you to develop. Um, and that's where, um, you know, the relationship with uh, those above you is really, really important that you're given that time to to change things, to hopefully improve things. Um, but at the same time, you, you know, I remember a time um at the Pirates where we lost 10 consecutive games and we're looking around going, right, will there be a next week? Um, and, and luckily for for me and for the other coaches uh, at the time, um, we had the support of, of Dickie Evans um, and he did allow us that time and, and you know, it, it came through. Um, at the same time, you know, horror stories of, you know, the football mentality of you lose four games and you're on your way. Um, and, and I think that is the difficulty. Yes, I, I suppose the culture is a lot better when you're winning, um, but you can paper over cracks sometimes. Um, and, you know, you win a last minute try um, that gives you the win, but the actual culture is fairly toxic and, and the, the environment isn't productive. Um, and it just means you've got to, a state of execution for another week, but you haven't really achieved what you want to achieve. So I think, yeah, I agree. I think the foundations have to be there. It's something you fall back on. 
um, and then you know what we're doing is right. Um, we may be a little blip, but the bigger picture is, you know, what, what it's all about. How, how did you go about managing the, I guess, the stress and anxiety in, in that 10 game losing streak? What did that mean um, for you? I ate a lot of uh, ice cream. <laughs> um, that was one thing. It, it, was, it, it was interesting because um, it came the season after um, I was basically at the, on the, at the Pirates on my own. Um, so that was probably harder because I was forwards coach, backs coach, tack coach, defence coach, uh, director of rugby, the whole, the whole shebang, and um, and going through a, a transitional period with the squad as well of, of downsizing and, and guys moving on um, due to budget constraints, but also because we were successful in getting guys going to the next level. Um, and that was very insular. So you had to deal with it yourself, at least with the 10-game 10, the 10 losing streak. Gavin Cattle and Alan Paver had come on board as, as player coaches or, uh, yeah, co player coaches would probably be a good, a good example rather than coach player, if you know what I mean. Um, so at least then you could bounce some ideas around and, and that actually gave me a lot of energy as well because those were new guys to coaching and fresh pair of eyes, but also the things that they were coming up with were things that maybe I'd forgotten about because I was so long in the tooth and been coaching for 400 years. Uh, and you sometimes forget the simple things that you need to do well. Um, and and that's how we got through it, really. We, we just peeled everything back. It was, you know, it's no secret that the Pirates took a, a, a lot of onus on, on um, peer, peer coaching and the player-led player a lot of things, but also the fact that there were two competitions, the championship and the BNI Cup, and we took both very, very seriously. So it was 10 games and then the BNI Cup first block of games. And, and the way we looked at it was, well, it's a new competition and we started again and, and, and sort of themed uh, again, which is something that is very prevalent now, but we themed those three games to to get us through the, the swamp as it was. And, uh, and that's what we did. I love that. Fantastic. Uh, Neil, Paul, what about you? What about, you know, losing streaks or when you've been under pressure? How have you kind of managed that that stress or any tips or techniques you've kind of gone through? I, I think a, a big thing is looking at what the controllable factors are. Um, you know, I've, I've been in a coaching team where we've been in a league and, you know, we're, we're playing up. We're playing up against teams who've got 10 times the wage bill. Um, and I think you, you have to try and contextualise everything. You're doing it now. <laughs> you, know, you know, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Paul. You know, there are some things that you can control and there are some things which are, which are you know, really out of your hands. So I think for, for, for me as a, as a coach, it's, it's getting the players to understand actually what is a controllable factor and what isn't. And then once you understand and once you get the players, more importantly, to understand that that comes, you, you kind of, your KPIs and your indicators of those, your uh, assessment pieces. Uh, mm rather than actually, you know, that, that result. And I'm sure we've all sat in on, you know, pre-season team meetings where we've gone, where we've all, the players have gone, right, we want to turn our home ground into a fortress and we want, to be, we want to be undefeated at home. And then you rock up first game of the season, you lose against a team that have got six, into, six overseas guys and all of a sudden your goals, your goals have gone. But actually, you set yourself a goal which was completely unachievable based on the external factors of it. That would be kind of my view on it is, 
you know, what are we in, what are we in control of? What are we not in control of? Let's just make sure we're 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 outstanding and we're 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 superb at what we can control. Yeah, on your on your theme, and um, sort of touched on a few. Um, came onto the player coaches there. It was I, you know, when I went, I joined Sale. I think it was in nineteen ninety two, and actually, it was easier if you got everything to do in them days. Then there became these days where every coach is responsible. You probably got too many coaches at times. So sometimes stripping it down and being able to do, I always say really a player coach. I got two of them with me now and they're both fine players and good coaches as well. And it's got to probably be in that order for me, which is what you said about um, Gav Cattle and uh, Alan Paver. They came in mainly as players, but they started their coaching careers with you. I think that can quite work. I don't know how prevalent that is. You can't do it in the professional game, that's for sure. But with our sort of um, semi-pro game, I just felt, you know, as a player coach in sale in 92, we got promotion to the premiership around that time, I think, and they're still there now. Um I think it, it it was actually quite the norm in those days, player coaches, weren't they? So um, there wasn't a lot of interference, I suppose, in, um, you know, at the end of the day, you were the one who, who had the praise and, and obviously when things didn't go well, you were the one who, who copped it. I probably did in the end, but I was on a winning streak then, by the way. But um, it's funny how things have changed and it, it comes into mind when I do my um, uh, presentation in, in a couple of minutes it comes into my focus as well on you know, with a different team yeah yeah we we sort of we we went um, we looked at it historically and we said these are the top four teams in the championship. So the championship we've been since 2009. Before that, it was national one, 16 teams. So it was different. So it was 12 teams. This is what, if you want to be in the top four, these are the, the markers, going back to Neil's point, that you needed to hit. So you needed this percentage of line-out ball one, this percentage of your scrum ball. You could only give away X number of penalties. This is the time in possession. And, and, it, and, and it was amazing. Looking at over the, the time... And at the time, what was that? That was five years of, of the championship. Uh, the top four fitted into that statistically absolutely amazingly. And, that, and, that, and that's what we got the players to, to buy into that then. It was about, um, yeah, we're, we're playing Mosley this weekend. Don't really care because these are the things that we need to do. These are the bits that we need to control. Um, and... Obviously, we played Bristol. Everybody loved to play against Bristol because they put you in the shop window. You were playing normally against 12 or 13 internationals. Uh, we invariably beat them, uh, which was even more pleasurable. Um, but the, the, but that was easy. But when you played Nottingham or Moseley or uh, Richmond or, or whatever, you know, teams that you perceive to be in around you or just below you, that's when we needed those targets. That's when we needed that, that data. Um but at the same time, for some players, they didn't want data. You, you know, you, you you work with guys and, and they're not that focused. And that was the balancing act. And that's where I think the culture of, of what is about the bigger picture, um, the fact that, you know, it was a little bit of um, 
us trying to stick a finger in the eye of the RFU to a certain extent. You know, we were out out on the the edge. Um, you had to drive past Exeter, which was a shiny stadium and the you know brilliant brilliant setup with Rob and things there, to carry on another two hours to get to us. And you know, but it's a rugby hotbed. Uh, Cornwall. Uh, turn the lights off when the county championship is on type sort of scenario and and that's what we we tried to build but we were bringing guys in from outside of Cornwall to then buy into that that culture and that environment and and that's the bit where um, going back to the the sports psych show the link to the past was important for us what had gone before you know the England internationals that had come through Penzance and Newland Rugby Club before Cornish Pirates were formed um were all around the clubhouse and their photos and things and, and the link to that for the players to understand, actually, you pr- you're pulling on quite a prestigious shirt here. It's, it's more than just the here and now. It's the hard work that's gone before. I'm not right to say, Ian. It looks like we came down, didn't we, with the Dragons at that time. We used to play here every pre-season. Your term there, did it coincide with you just being at one ground or were you jumping around? So initially we were uh, at Camborne. Uh, and then we moved back to the Mene then in Penzance right. uh, at the end of my first year. So. That's right. Um, so we played one year at Camborne and then the, the, your first year, then we came to Penzance on yeah. our annual August tour, wasn't it? I think it was still, right, yeah. still a tour then in them days, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, it was, it was good, and, and and that was the thing, you know, the passion of the, the people around and was just absolutely amazing, and, and that's why the BNI Cup, um, I, I look back, and it, and it was very much, uh, you know, some of the comments were, well, this is the closest we're going to get to being in the Six Nations, uh, so we're playing against, because obviously Cornwall's their own nation, obviously, uh, you know, and, and it was, so we'd play Newport, or we'd play Munster, or we'd play... Um, the, the Scottish teams and and it, and it would be you know we're, we're 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 representing Cornwall. This is it. This is what it's about. And the crowds were just phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And and that's where I think you speak to lots of the former Pirates players. I know you got some with you, Paul at, at Hamtill. Just absolutely amazing. You know the 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 passion for for the area uh, and the club was just in, enthusiasm from the crowd and and, the, and that, that history that some of the the old boys in the club would tell you some fantastic stories of stack stevens and people like that and you're like wow absolutely amazing you know and, and and i think that's the bit where um going back to phil's point about everything's on winning but ultimately that culture and what you build in and the foundations and legacy of good people make good rugby players and things like that is, is really really important I can um, think of that, Phil. I can like the, the early comment that Ian made. Although, tell me any occasion when we were all in the schoolyard years ago and we were playing a game of soccer or a game of whatever that we didn't want to win, you know. And look, at the end of the day, most—I'd say ninety-nine percent of of all of us—I think we're talking a little bit differently. You know, it's when you're in charge of a lot of people. I think it's a little bit different then. You obviously want to win, but there are certain things that you can and can't do or you know you've got different people to deal with after the game i.e media and all that sort of thing so it's different but like the four of us i would have thought we all want to win all the time really don't yeah yeah Yeah. ian i'd be interested how um how would what would be the impact of that experience at you know down at pirates in your school role you know and, and managing expectations of 
18-year-old lads at the minute on a, on a Saturday morning? Well, it, it's, it's, it's managing staff expectations as well, to be perfectly honest, uh, and how it, it's ultimately schoolboy sport, mm. and it should be seen as that. It's about playing with your mates. It's about uh, an holistic approach. You know, you, you play for fun. You play because you want to, uh, you know, looking at the values of the game, treads and, and things like that. Um, you win, fantastic. Yes, we want to win, but have you performed the best you can perform? And, um, you know, like I said earlier, you're not you're not paying your mortgage depending on if we beat St. John's Leatherhead on, on Saturday. Um, but... And, and I think that's the bit where um, staff expectations, especially those who haven't coached outside the school environment, sometimes build it up to being the next World Cup. And, you know, on your fixture list, you haven't got the All Blacks. You've got the next school. And it's what happens to those boys when they leave the school? Are they still, still in the game? Are they still enthused by the game? Do they want to go and play for the third team at Harpenden? Or are they just giving up? because it's been built up into this massive thing where, um, and, and that's where we're at, really. My, my I see success as how many boys are still playing when they leave. Um, you know, and, and you get an email to say, oh, I made my debut this week for Birmingham University second team. Brilliant. That, that to me, is we've achieved. Now, obviously, some guys go and play for Quinn's Academy, and we've had, you know, success there with boys. Well, that's great, but that's only a small part of it. Um and, that, and that, I think that's the bit where sometimes schools get caught up in wins a little bit. For I'm going to be hated by a lot of directors who have been in schools now, but it, they, they put a lot of focus on that first team and that first team winning where they forget the other 30 boys who still we need to keep in the game. Otherwise, we don't have a game any longer, do we, at club level, um, if we can't bring the people through. So, um, yeah, so, so the focus is very much on play with your mates, have a bit of fun, play the right way, um, you know, to use Paul as an example, if you want to express yourself and, and take a left-footed drop kick, take a left-footed drop kick. If it was the right thing to do, do it. If you don't get it, we can discuss that at a later point, but don't be afraid of having a go, um, you know. Um, I'd have a question maybe of the, the second row who's tried it, who's never tried it ever before, um, and maybe saying, you know, Why? And if he turns around and he says, well, I just wanted to because it's a laugh. Well, OK, we've got to discuss that and, you know, talk those things through. But ultimately, I'd, I'd much rather do that than me stand there berating him for, oh, you've just cost us a game against first peer point. Who, who, who really cares? It's been a fantastic game of rugby. The score is 46-40, um, you know, and, and everybody's come off the field and they had a great time. What about, what about yourself? What about you, the school? Uh, well, my school... Um... Uh, almost identical uh, philosophy to, to you, Ian. You know, we're where we are. We were a state school. We still managed to get you know decent numbers of sides out on a on a Saturday. A, B, C teams, um, and that's what we kind of use as our marker. Um, we we don't count wins. We don't we don't publish even publish results anymore. Um, but we'll, but we'll publish how many boys played that weekend or how many teams went out. Um, yeah, I think there's. Um, there's some really interesting stuff happening in teenage brains at the moment. And um, that's probably a discussion for another day around, you know, winning fear of failure, what's driving them, what's motivating them. Um, but yeah, for us, for us, we, we very much just focus on what we're, what we're in control of um, the things that we do well, um, you know, and, and again, we want to make it the most enjoyable experience we possibly can on a Saturday morning. 
you know, and I know we're all rugby guys and we love it. We'll get up Saturday morning, Sunday morning, Friday night games, you know, whatever it is, you know, the, the, the current, the current teenage is very different nowadays. Yeah. So, you know, and if we don't make it an enjoyable experience that they'll let us know by not turning up anymore. So yeah, I'm exactly the same as you, Ian, you know, getting that email about someone who's playing for their university team or their freshers team or, um, turning out for the local rugby club second, third, fifteen. That that's for me success. I'm, I'm totally same as you. Yeah, I agree. Um, I spent a couple of years down at Rygate. You know that Ian, don't you? I came <laughs> and seen you. I think going back over what you just said. Yeah, look, schools have um, have got the divisions now on their fixture list, suddenly, so they are the top on the schools uh, within the country and then there's probably a second division and then there's your third when I when I joined Rygate uh, I did I think nearly six years down at Rygate um, two or three times a week and uh, lots of travelling so got there and sort of you know when I was back in Wales as a kid you know, I went to a grammar school and you always hear the size up in England like Rygate and you know but they were not they were not that anymore and, yeah and, point um because you can see it through their fixture list and uh sort of one of my coaching satisfactions actually is, uh, we we went to harrow one day and beat them in the natwest cup which was if you'd have looked at the warm-up you'd have thought um the game was over before the warm-up you know and this is only it's about 2000 and 15, I think, 2016, maybe. But we had three or four good players that were in, um, and it was what it was a satisfying day of coaching. I often talk to the Rygate staff about it. It was just everything we sort of prepared for happened on the day, and yeah. we, we knocked Harrow out on their own ground. And that, to me, that you know that that was real satisfying coaching wise we, we probably had three sessions in the week played them on a Wednesday afternoon up at the Harrow School and knocked them out of the cup we went out the following week at Hampton but it was unbelievable what this group had done now whether it was just a, what we call a helicopter group within the school they had just come through the, the yeah. system and they were just there they weren't we were trying to return, trying to turn that after that into the Rygate way of doing things, and it hasn't quite happened for the boys since. But going back to your our fixture list dictated how good we were, and and a lot of what you were saying then about if there are one or two players that make Harlequins Academy uh, or EPDG these days, then that's a real success. The rest yeah. are usually which isn't a bad thing, heading for university somewhere, you know, and playing for ones, twos or threes university side. So I can, I can resonate with that, yeah. I, guys, I'm, I'm already conscious of time and I think there's, there's probably loads more to unpick in terms of um, goal setting and, and variables within, you know, success and how winning is probably one of those as we touched on, but it's, it's certainly not the only one. But um, I think we'll, we'll probably park that one there and uh, we'll shift this on. So, Neil, we're going to come to you. Um, what is it you're going to explain to us? Um, yeah, so this is a, this is a podcast that, and uh, the kind of the one, my one thing from lockdown has been, has been about having opportunity to do more coach development, more reflections. Um, and there's one podcast in particular that I just that I keep going back to. Um, and every time I listen to it, I end up picking up something different from it. So 
May 20, uh, May 2020, um, Kevin Bowring, Nigel Redmond on with the Magic Academy with uh, Fletch and, uh, and Rusty, um, all about coach education and, and what coach education looks like. And where I found it really fascinating is um, both Nigel Redmond and Kevin Bowring talk about their, their coaching journeys. Um, they talk about their their values they talk about their their curiosity to coaching and, and learning and I think that what this lockdown period is and the lockdown period sorry the multiple is like there haven't been coaching qualification badges courses done in the last 12 months but yet we've probably seen more coach education than ever before um you know we've we've sat on zoom calls we've we've done uh podcasts I mean podcasts like this are great that you can just stick on when you're in the car so I think you know when we always talk about coach education we've always thought about going down to going down to Twickenham turning up at the at the hotel sit there two three days get your certificate at the end but I think in, in terms of coach education and what quality coach education looks like um, I think is really fascinating um, I, I've got pages and pages of notes on on this bottle up and I tried to narrow it down to kind of three real key points. Um, the first one is, is obviously about trust. If anyone who's had a, a coach mentor uh, or has been a mentor knows about the importance and the value of having that trust open relationship. Um, I think as, as coaches, we'll all be the first ones to put our hand up and say that we've coached really, really poor sessions. We've managed situations really poorly. But I think that what, what separates uh, coaches is, is that willingness to be open and, and put their hand up and, and recognize uh reflect review um learn from it uh and, and and go on from there so a couple of you know of great scenarios that, that were thrown into the mix um around inclusion of the coaching team uh obviously ian you talked about there about coaching on your own pool you're in a coaching team where you've got player coaches um and there was a couple of points made about inclusion of this team and in particular the analyst in that we use our analyst in our coaching teams that do a brilliant job of analyzing and making players better are we potentially missing an opportunity to make coaches better from within from within that environment which i thought was a was a really fascinating one i've been very fortunate to work in some some brilliant coaching groups uh where we have been very open we've been very honest uh we review everything we do we plan everything that we do together so that that was a really big thing um, linked to that, you know, and again, uh, working in a school environment and working in a professional environment, something which really hit home with me was if we've got a player or a student in a school that's underperforming, underachieving, um, the first thing we do is we get all the major stakeholders around the table and we talk about, right, where, do, where, 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 do we, where can we be better? Where do we need to be better? Where do we need to be working together? And the kind of question that was posed was, why does it take an underachieving, underperforming individual for us to do that? You know, why, why, are we, why, why when something's going well, why do an individual or a group of individuals or a unit are going well? Why are we not then pulling analysts, psychologists, medical people around the table and going, right, actually, what is it that we're doing really well at the minute? You know, so we're, we're very good at kind of managing the crisis but actually we don't then put the same process in place for when things are going really well. Uh, and that was something that really got me thinking uh, on that. Um, a really a really great piece was, was Nigel Redmond talking about um, coaching pedagogy and questions. Um, I think coaches have 
developed the skill of questioning over the the last few years. Um, and he came and he came out with an absolutely brilliant line for me, which was, "If you want to be better at asking questions, you've got to be a better listener." Um, and I think we've all been guilty, and certainly I'll put the first one to put my hand up and say, "I've asked players a set of questions, and I'm trying to get them to the answer which is in my head." Whereas actually, what I should be doing is asking questions on what they're seeing, what they're hearing, what they're feeling, um, what's called, what's making them make decisions, how, how are they problem solving, rather than just getting to the answer which I which I want. You know, I need the question, questions need to be better quality, um, possibly less of them, but when you do ask it, it's got a lot more meaning, it's got a lot more value. Um, and again, he, he came up with this, this, this great line, which was the second question is the best answer. So if, you know, if you're asking a question rather than just skipping on to the next one, you know, what do you mean by that? You know, what did you see? What did you hear? What instigated that? You know, so I thought that was really good. And that's something actually I've implemented in my pastoral role in school where we've just done our, our applications for house captains and all. And we had 11 students that came in and interviewed and we went into the interview as three members of staff and we didn't plan any questions whatsoever. So we didn't have our bit of paper that was like, right, you're going to ask question one, you're going to ask question two. We just went in and we just, and we just had, we had an open dialogue for 25 minutes, 30 minutes. And I feel I got so much more out of it than had, if I'd have just gone through my list of questions where chances are, because it was an interview, I probably would have heard the answers that I wanted to hear or, and I probably would have heard the same answer 11 times, but actually by not having a pre-planned pre-scripted, uh, interview. Uh, I actually got 11 very different interviews. I found out a lot of information about the individuals. I found out a lot more deeper, meaningful information. Um, so I think in terms of linking that back to the coaching, that, you know, it's that, can we plan questions? You know, is the art of coaching the, the on the spot? What are we seeing? What are we hearing? You know, um, live, you know, kind of live coaching uh, that I, I would describe that as um, so yeah, so so that's you know it made say May twenty twenty some great stuff on um, what is high performance, um, what's a, what what is the learning environment. Uh, I know a lot of this stuff has been covered before. Lots about collaboration and of trust of working multi-directional with the stakeholders around in your group, um, and then obviously you know what is coaching. You know it's it's the ability to get the the learning into your players and onto the pitch um, and there isn't necessarily a right or wrong way of doing it, it it's very different for different individuals um, and the skill in the art is is that understanding the individuals and finding the best way for them to do it uh, rather than the way that we think is the best way to do for it so yeah that's that that's my podcast that I keep returning to um, and yeah would, would highly recommend anyone gets that opportunity to go back and revisit it if they haven't already done it. Thank you very much. I, I, there's loads in there. It is a really, really good listen. And I, I'm, I'm wondering around the role of kind of self-directed learning. So uh, I, the cynic in me says lots of people went into Coach Ed in lockdown one or, or kind of since, probably because they just suddenly had a load more time mm. and they wanted to fill, fill the hole. And, and that's, that's, I mean, if you learn something from that, great, but I, I would be interested in has that behavior changed from maybe some people, and these are pretty big generalizations, so bear with me, but the, the people that maybe sat there as coaches kind of going, they're waiting for Coach Ed to come to them. 
it should be provided or the RFU should do this or my county should do this or my club should do this. I've suddenly been forced to go and find it themselves. And I, 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 whether it's a research project or whatever, I don't know whether we'll ever know, but I'd be really interested if that mentality in some people has changed too. Now I can find my own stuff. Now I'm just going to lead my own development because there's a load, suddenly there's a ton more stuff out there. Um, and actually, will will that momentum stay? I, I guess we'll find out in September if we suddenly see a plummet of informal learning and podcasts and you know chats and communities of practice and all this type of stuff. Then maybe we'll have returned to that kind of old position where people are then expecting it to be done for them again. But I'd, I'd really love to see that as a sea change. And I'd be interested within your environment. Do, do you think we will see this? Is have we kind of turned the corner? for lots of people to now be far more self-directed in their coach development, in their learning, um, in, in, as you say, almost turning the, the well, metaphorical or, or real camera on themselves and actually taking it maybe more seriously than they did before. I think um, coaches and players as well, to a certain extent, um, you, can, you can become defined by lockdown how you come out the other side and what you've done during that lockdown. We say to a few of our players, like fitness-wise, we've always said it through lockdown. And sometimes you weren't able to train, but people have kept up their stuff, you know, and um, there's a couple of things that has happened. Like I had a, I had a fly half, um, my fly half in one of the pre-season friendlies that we just had about three weeks ago, dropped the left-footed goalie in, in um, nice. um I've been talking to him about it for a long time, but if he hadn't practiced and done his lockdown stuff, that would never have happened. Uh, it's a good story, actually. It reminds me of a... Bear with me. I, I went up to Bermuda with the uh, Classicals years ago, and uh, we played South Africa in a semi-final, and we beat them with the last try, uh, but we had to kick off, and there was a bit of a ping-pong going on, which was... A, it wasn't like that in those days. But anyway, we kicked back down and the ball went to their centre called Danny Herber. Yeah. Great South African centre. And from his own 10-metre line, he tried to drop goal. And he would have won on the game. And it went and went and went. And just dropped short, I think it did. And we kicked it dead and we won the game. And I thought about it after. It's what you were talking about earlier on. You, you don't do things. No rugby player ever really tries things that they've never practiced and uh, he'd obviously on the high veld or whatever in South Africa as a kid had practiced his 60 metre drop goals you know? <laughs> it made me think it made me think and we we talked to our try and talk to our players about this like being defined by a lockdown of what you've been doing similar with the Zoom stuff that we've um, I don't know with you guys whether you uh I'm all right with Zoom, but like it ain't like a an eyeball in team session in a room, is it? It's, it's a little <laughs> bit different. So yeah, I can I can I can resonate with that as well. Um, but a lot of people will be defined by what they've done in lockdown. Coaches as well. Yeah, I think there's a, there's, there's a couple of points there, Paul. I think I think some of the best coach education is sometimes just getting three or four people around a coffee table. Or, 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 or around a pub table, Definitely. you know, and, and just, I, I think that's a, you, know, you can't put a value on, on that and just people yeah. talking, being honest, 
being open with each other. Um, and that's something I've, I've really missed in the last 12 months is that, you know, be able to sit around a table and just chat coaching with, with people. And but the second point, Paul, which I totally agree on you about us being defined by lockdown is there's been an enormous amount of stuff out there. Um, I think the real skill of the coaches is looking at what's, what's right for the, for the players I'm working with. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to some coaches and they've been on, they've listened to various um, Zooms and podcasts and they go, right, I'm going to throw that into my under 11, my son's under 11 team, you know, yeah. and, and you're like, the, the skill of coaching is right. What do my players need? Mm-hmm. Um, what's best for them? Or what do they think is best for them? You know, and actually I'm going to take a little bit from here. I'm going to take a little bit from here and I'm going to put it together into something which, which meets my, my own coaching and my own coaching philosophy uh, or principles. So, yeah, I, I really agree on that element of it, not, not defining us. Yeah, and, well, I'm going to make Neil blush now a little bit, maybe, because I've always been interested in the stuff he puts on Twitter and there's some scrum stuff and he analyses it. and It's brilliant, it's brilliant to see. Um, and it's those little bits, the, the Zoom calls, I think, um, I think you get to a point where it's very samey and people are saying things just for, for gimmick's sake and, and things. Uh, and we'll have been on courses where you've got the, the scribbler, that's all they want is a drill and they're going to do it for their team and they have no context at all for how it works and, and you know, love Rusty the Bits. But he's got a lot of things to answer for for Sunday morning super coaches who think they're the bee's knees because they've seen Rusty do a drill, taking it totally out of context. They don't know why they're doing it, but now that's what they're doing on Sunday. And I think that's what's going to change. I think you may see a lot more coach education um, on Zoom to take away that, just copy a drill, do it, put some cones down. You don't know why you're doing it. It just looks pretty and you've got people running in different directions and... Open 360 rugby, but you don't know why they're scoring. You don't know why why they're doing it, but I've seen it on our few course and I'm going to do it. Yeah. Um, whereas the benefit would be, as Neil said, the level four, when I did the level four, it was the same thing. You probably learnt more afterwards yeah. over dinner, sitting down with Simon yeah. Middleton and Rob Baxter and Tony Dick Bros and people like these guys and just moving salt cellars around and, and forks with suddenly the rucks and things. You know, the, the course was brilliant, don't get me wrong. But that's where the learning took place yeah. at about two o'clock in the morning. And but that was what it was about, you know, and, and I think that's the bit where the coach education needs to evolve. As as Neil said, it's those discussions um around a table rather than sitting in front of a PowerPoint and going, Yeah, there's a certificate, off you go. I, I can't believe Neil tweets stuff scrum stuff, mate. I'm waiting for his back three videos. That's that's what I'm keen for. Counter attack. Oh. Phil, you could you could be waiting a long time. For that, mate. <laughs> that's that's why that, that, that's why I rang up that's why I rang up Paul and said, Paul, can you come in and do some back sessions in my school? Because <laughs> my fullbacks are doing scrum sessions every week. Mate. They've, they've had enough of it. Okay. Um, I love that. <laughs> what um, I guess we talked a little bit about around the informal piece and the, uh, yeah, as you say, the value in in just those conversations. Do do we think it's just about offering a balance? we're not saying do away with formal education because I, I, I see this probably a lot and I was probably definitely one of them at the time you kind of go in if those qualifications and we can say learning's non-linear and all this type of stuff but if if you have a qualification that builds on the last one 
people are always going to want to do it because it's there to be done. And I think there is value in those, but is it then just that blend of this type of stuff courses? Is it just saying, let's just give everybody lots of opportunities to do everything and work out what works for them? Yeah. But, but also I think, and I've been quite vocal about this in the past that the premiership level, you get a guy who's a, a player on the Friday and on the Monday, he's now the academy coach and has no background of coaching and no, you know, and there's, and I think that's where uh, the championship in particular, um, there's some very, very good coaches in the championship who are doing it day in, day out. And, and I always laugh that the, there's lots of things on, on social media about uh, players being picked up to go into the premiership and they, you know, they've done the hard yards, they've done three or four years in the premiership. Uh, in the championship, sorry. And then you look at it and you go, well, that coach has been there five years developing those players and he's got 22 players who are now playing in the premiership or whatever. He must have got something about him. But because he hasn't played that one game in the premiership and hasn't got the tracksuit, we can't possibly have him in there. And, you know, and, and Lee Blackett is a classic example of that where he's been given the shot. Lee's an absolute tremendous guy. Has certainly been through the hard yards at Rotherham um, and is doing a pretty good job at Wasps and has surrounded himself with guys who have been in the championship as well. But, you know, you, Paul will come up against people like Steve Bowden at Doncaster, top, top boy Steve, and a really good forwards coach. Alan and Gav at the Pirates have been there a long time. And you laugh about Neil doing back three, but that's Alan Paver is scrum coach, back three, counter attack, and defence. And because he wants to expand as a coach. He wants to challenge himself. And, you know, he's the only guy I know, I'll tell you a little story, that they went to the Waikato Chiefs um, as a CPD thing, uh, and they were doing kick, chase, and transition. Uh, and then Paves was like, nah, I've got, I've got to be in it. So he asked the coaches of the Chiefs, could he join in? And there he is, gets his boots on, and in he goes. And, you know, there he is, little man, little prop, 300 games, uh, running around with the Waikato Chiefs because he wants to know about their transition and their kick chase and things like that. And I, I just I just think that's the bit that we fall down on. The kid, coach education, yeah, tick a lot of boxes. And I, and I do feel it's important people uh, get the awards because we always used to put guys at the Pirates through the level one as it used to be or whatever it's called now um and it used to change their perception of coaching totally when i first went down there there was a, a hooker who i won't name but everyone will know him um and after the first session he turned around to me and just said just tell me the effing answer stop asking me questions mm. and i was like but this is what coaching is sorry this is what you know you're on the park you need to to tell me the answer because ultimately you're the man doing it he then went through his coaching awards and then when i left he came up to me he said yeah i've got it now i now know why you asked all those bloody questions because that's that's how you get players to understand and and i think that's the bit um where education is important for the players to do the education if you understand it's another point actually that uh i'm going to do my slot on the on New Zealand now and the All Blacks but they are quite innovative in backs becoming forwards coaches vice versa you know and I was like Steve Hansen was wouldn't look at but he was a centre in his day and he became a forwards coach um, 
I think they swapped now and again. I think Graham Henry went and did the forwards one year and uh, Hanson went and did the backs. And there's a couple of others I've, I've thought of that have become more rounded coaches, you know, because they've, they've gone through the two roles. Um, it's something we don't do. But I don't know. I know Eddie was a hooker, but like uh, Eddie coaches working around the corner off off nine and works all that sort of stuff. I would imagine he, he'd, he'd be pretty grounded in back three stuff as well, you know. So it's a little bit different, but that's another topic, really. I, I think it's really interesting, though. There was a, a rugby pass put out an article uh, last couple of days that kind of quoted or an interview with Wayne Smith, basically saying how he feels that New Zealand are now robotic in how they play mm. um, and that it's copy and paste. And I was like, Jesus, if he's seen from New Zealand are robotic, what the hell is he going to think mm. of some of the some of the Northern Hemisphere stuff? And that, that's always my big question of it. I, it. And I think it's funny when you put it on social media, I'm always conscious that people will just think you're bitter, that you've not had that opportunity or whatever. And I, I genuinely don't think it's about that. I think it's valuing the process that lots of people spend lots of time, as you said, Ian, developing themselves with a view to getting the best opportunity they possibly can. And to be... No one's got a right to any job. I, I would be adamant that, and, I, and I'm not even sure a pathway for coaching should exist because there's always going to be more coaches than there are jobs they could fill. But I, I just have that concern. If you've been at a club for 10 years as a player, I, I get valuing somebody and keeping them in and, and rewarding them for their service and everything else. But where do the new ideas come from? Because I, I, don't, I don't see them going you know that stuff we've done for 10 years well it was all right but I think we should do something completely different mm. and it just becomes and this is what Wayne's talking about it just becomes everybody now plays with the same pod system and they do the same thing here and there and everywhere else and you kind of go well what's what's the next evolution of the game um, because I, I also think and I think we've spoken about this on the pod before is are we now seeing the last of a generation of probably more international head coaches that are no longer former pros. So lots of, you know, Hanson, um, Lancaster, there's lots of people, Eddie, are, were teachers and are now professional coaches. Once, I appreciate Stuart could be around for a while yet, but once Eddie and those guys are gone, Hanson's already gone, I think the next group are all going to be former pros themselves. So have, have we now lost that generation of people that will have only, you know, we're now into people that will only know rugby, really? Um and, and I just, I don't know where that leads the game. It's not, it's not a criticism of them personally at all. There's some really good players, I think, that have gone on to be really good coaches. But I, I just feel like it's probably leaning far too far one way in, in a system. And, and even the fallout of that, it was really interesting. A school recently put out, is still open, um, ahead of rugby role. And the skills and experience, the first two were former professional, ideally a former international. I, okay, you've got to, you, you're trying to sell the school. I get that, but please, please explain to me what what that's got to do with good coaching. Just re regurgitating if that's all they are going to do. And as I say, that's that's some will be really good, others will be shit. We we see it, but I, I, yeah, I'm not sure where it leads us. But I think I think that's the thing. You're getting coaches now who have only ever been professional rugby players as well. Um, you know. Paul will smile, smile at this on a Tuesday night when you've got your session planned uh, and you get, you're going to work on this and suddenly nine players turn up. Three of them are asthmatic midgets and two props and you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And you've got to think on your feet and coach. 
It's easy when you've got, you know, 18 boys who, who are being paid to be there uh, yeah. and you can do live scrums on, on your go. And, you know, that I think that's the bit where um, I always get my, my niggers in a twist that they haven't done the hard yards. You know, they haven't done that Tuesday night in the pouring rain when you've got to make it entertaining for the seven. You can't send them for laps for the whole session and punish them for turning up so you can't go home. You know, it's it's you've got to do something meaningful because, as Neil said earlier, you want them to turn up again next week because those are the guys that are going to stay in the game and be part of it. And, and that's the bit. Um, and, you know, I disagree with you, Phil. Yes, I am bitter because uh, I wasn't given that chance to, 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 to say, actually. And then for somebody to turn around and say, no, you're not good enough. Okay, I'll deal with that. I can live with that. But not to be given that chance is is the bit that maybe I'm bitter about. And some of the some of the development feedback I got was would make you laugh, but I'm not going to tell you live on the pod. <laughs> I think the difference in is probably I was never good enough to be at that. Level. Well, I don't know. I don't know. So, <laughs> um, I guess kind of final question on this, and an open one to all three of you is how how impactful or not was mentoring for you as a coach? Have, have you all had mentors? Do you all mentor people currently? What's your kind of general view on, on mentoring as a process and whether it's, it's something everybody should have, or does it suit some people and not others kind of general, general overview, go wherever I've, you like. I've, I've been very fortunate in that I've, I've had some, some brilliant mentors uh, in my time. Um, I look at uh, Dennis Ormisher at, at Bedford Blues Academy uh, when I coached there for four years, um, absolute brilliant at asking the questions with the players in mind all the time. You know, he was very good at shaping me to think, okay, you think you, you think what you're doing is right, right. Is it right for the players? Um, and the reason he did that. And again, this comes back to the, what, what Kev Browning and Nigel Redman were saying is it's about the, I had absolute full trust in that he wanted me to be the best coach I could be. Um, and he wanted the players to be the best players that they could be. Um, and that, and what he did is he created actually, not just through mentoring me individually, but he created a coaching team um, uh, with some guys, Rich Candley and Alan Brown, who Paul will know, who's at Amptil. You know, we created a coaching culture within ourselves as a result of that, where by actually there was a group of four of us coaching and we were all mentoring each other, you know, on a, on a weekly, daily basis, we are checking challenge. Um, we're asking each other questions. We're challenging each other and we're all doing it because we understand the value of it. And we understand that we're, we're doing it. Um, not, not, not to, not to be uh, twats about it, but because it make it, cause it makes us better and it challenges our own thinking. Um, when I did my level four, uh, again, Tony, I, I was fortunate to work with Tony Robinson, who, I, who was a great coach developer. Um, he was great. He knew me. He knew exactly what buttons to press uh, on me to get the rea to get reactions, um, which was great. But also he totally understood when to go. Actually, I don't need to say any more because you're already because you're already saying it. You're already doing the reflections. You're already um, starting the analysis. You, you're already there. I don't need to keep adding on top of it just for the sake of it. Um, so yeah, men mentoring has been, has been really powerful uh, for me, but in answer to your question, Bill, that's because I'm, I'm just on the constant thirst to be better all the time, you know, so I'll, I'll welcome, you know, 
people that say, yeah, no, you know, I'd mentor you or I'll be mentored by you. You know, for me, for me, it, it's great. But I also know there's a lot of people who, you, you know, you're under nines coach on a Sunday morning who's, who's doing it as a favor because there's, because there's 50 boys turned up probably doesn't want someone in his ear on a, on a Sunday lunchtime challenging every single thing he's done because he's going to go, well, do you know what? Again, I'm, I'm not going to come next week. So for people that, for people that want to be better, for people that want to develop themselves as coaches, teachers, I think mentoring is, uh, it's an absolute great thing. As long as the mentoring is open, honest, um, full of trust. Um, and, and it's all being done for the, for the right reasons. Did you want to jump in? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, look, I've been player coaching from 1990, I think 1991. You boys were youngsters then. Um, was I a coach when I was a player? I suppose last year or two. And then 1991, I became player coach down in Newport, and there was no mentoring or anything then, really, until I came into England and, and did my levels, and then same as you guys, Kev Bowring with your man, you know, uh, you know, full of admiration for what Kev used to do. At that time, I think, and we're talking about 2003 now, I think we all used to gather at Ashridge. Um, you're talking Wayne Smith, um, the guys you mentioned earlier on, Nigel Redmond, Richard Hill, Phil Davis was involved then as well. And it was probably... That was what that was quite enjoyable. It, it, we went into um, sort of a business model of things regarding and uh, rugby fighting the business side of it. Does that make sense, guys? That um, so they were like, I think we had two years there of enjoy. I went back to Wales then and took my level four down in Wales, but I've never really had a mentor to be honest, um, other than Kev when. And that's such a long time ago now. So it'd be interesting to hear what, what you guys, I suppose in a way now I'm head coach up at Ampdale and I'm probably mentoring player coaches now in, in, in that sort of way, you know. I think that's, that's, I think that's your problem, Paul. Everybody's seen you coaching for so long. They think you know everything, so they, they don't think you need uh, the mentor. And I think that's the bit where, um, I think that's the important bit. And it doesn't necessarily mean somebody in rugby. You just need to have that sounding board. And that's what Kevin always used to say. Um, you know, who's your thinking partner used to be. Yeah. Is, is yeah. Um, and sometimes you need that. And when we were in the championship, a guy called Rick Shuttleworth was employed by the RFU. Yeah. And he was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Because he just used to make you think. And as Neil was saying there, you just say, what do you think of that? And you'd say, and you go, okay, what do the players think? And you're like, what? Uh, um, um, and then, you, you know, that was the conversation. And um, I'm currently mentoring guys in level three and level four and thoroughly enjoying it because it is that trust and open conversation and you're probably learning as much as, as they are um, and keeping you, as Neil said earlier, just that thirst for trying to develop yourself and, and improve all the time. And, and sometimes going back to, to what I said right at the start, it's reminding you of what you did 10, 15 years ago when you were coaching then to go, actually, why did I change that? That, that was yeah. good. That worked. That was what we needed to do. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think that thinking partner, somebody just to bounce ideas off, even if it's, 
you know, drive up to watch Amtil train and just throw a couple of hand grenades in for Paul just to think about why they're doing something, just gets his mind ticking and so he can justify to himself, yeah, we're on the right path, we're doing what we need to do. Um, or opening the door for Neil to say, why didn't you nip down to Harlequins and see what Adam Jones is doing with, with the scrum? All oh, right, okay, great, thanks for that. You know, and I think that's the role sometimes the mentors needed at that level, not necessarily just the the new guys who are coaching, it's that the coaches who have been in for a long time. Supposing you're right, Ian, it's um, just made me think uh, my time down in the Dragons uh, was like nearly six years. Four of, year, four of those years, my assistant coach, my forwards coach, Lee Jones, was just taken over at uh, Leicester as general manager now. He probably was my sounding board at that time. Yes. As soon as he went, it only lasted two years after that, I think. Okay. I was quite open and there was a lot of things I could talk about with that. But yeah, look, uh, he was my mentor looking at it now. He, you know, he'd, uh, uh, he was a good guy and, and knew, knew his stuff. Um, but yeah, with the Welsh Reunion at that time, there wouldn't have been any real mentors uh, that would be coming to us. Yeah. I, I think it's really interesting just, just how it varies. And I think this kind of, it's not being pushed by anybody, but it's it's just become a bigger thing. And suddenly lots of people are kind of saying, oh, you know, I, I need a mentor and would like to find one. And actually for some people, one mentor works really, really well. Mm. I think for other people, as you guys have shown the contrast there, actually you, you can just bounce around people. You, you just... Yeah. I'll take a bit from you and I'll take a bit from you and a bit from you and a bit from you. And actually you've probably got five or six people that are that thinking partner or that critical friend or kind of, you know, call it whatever you want. They, they just serve that purpose to help you along, along that way. And I, I, I really like the fact we probably agree there isn't one right answer for, for everybody. There's the, the, you know, it doesn't need formalizing necessarily. It's, it's just something you've got to, you've got to think about how, if, if you haven't got it, can you find it? And if you have, how does it suit you best, I guess? So I um, mm. love that. Great. Uh, Paul, we will come to you. What are you going to talk to us about? Yes. So so my topic, um, really, and it's, it's there's been a lot of it said already, but I think we are, the game's changed a lot, but we're in a little bit of a society with the game where I think rather things evolve, I know rules change and, we, we're actually revolving as well. There's things now that we are, we were doing 20 years ago, you know. And although the you know rules have changed, i.e. like, you know, there's no rucking anymore, for instance, so you can't get that quick ball. But there's some plays that, because it's probably the game is manufactured now for these plays, that people are saying, where did you get that from? You say, well, we did it 20 years ago. So there's a lot of things that, um, so I, I've, based it on a book that I've uh, I read, I think in 1992, 1993, and it was a fly on the wall um, inside the All Blacks. And you've got to be like thinking back during that time, like I think I just left Wales had gone to Manchester. It's a whole new world, believe me, um, at that time. And uh, we just had the World Cup 87, um, Super Rugby hadn't started and uh, I just played international only for one season played international rugby in 89 so read this book and I thought Christ what is that saying what is that book saying it's all about what we've been talking about now about 
how the All Blacks were as a brand. And that, that word wasn't even mentioned in 1992, but that this is what they were as a brand in 1992. So it's a fly on the wall guy called Robin McConnell who's gone into their camp and talked about the history of the manor of the All Blacks, um, which is quite interesting because my other thing that I wanted to talk about, Phil, was that um, selling their soul um, at the moment, uh, looking to sell their percentage of their brand in the last week or two, it's been out in the news. So it's interesting. I went back over this book and looked at it and I thought, oh, I read that before. And it was different. And some of the names in the book, you know, I'd played against or um, everybody, they were all sort of um, regular names and TV names throughout the world at that time. You mentioned them now to some of our boys and they've never heard of them, you know. But the thing that I picked out of most of um, what they wanted from an All Blacks coach and is from past coaches to the current coaches at that time. And when you look at it and read what they're saying, nothing really has changed with their um, presentation of their coach and what they required of their coach. Like I've got a guy here, Grant Fox, um, who speaks, at that time he was their, their, their 10, world-class player. He's now their current selector. Yeah. So in between these years, he's had different roles, but he's always, and he seems, he said at elite level, a coach should seek the input, input of his players. Part of their motivation and desire is fostered by their being involved in policy matters and team tactics. So it helps them to keep interested. Often the coach is an expert in all positions, but master of none. Again, something we've talked about. To my mind, quality, coach needs is man management and being able to coordinate the team and get them to achieve their goals. He has to cope with his own makeup and external elements such as media and player input, so his communication skills are vital. These are almost more of a prerequisite than rugby knowledge. The players should have the knowledge and the coach, and then the coach has to coordinate them. Now, I understand we're coaching different teams, you know, leagues, schools, whatever. This is all about a national team, I suppose. So you would expect the players, when they're selected, to be of a decent standard. Um, but you go through most of, you know, there's an Andy Leslie one here. There's uh, a guy who I met once upon a time, JB, JJ Stewart. They're all, they're all pretty much to a T on what the All Blacks wanted from their or the All Black squad or team wanted from their coach. So the book is based mainly on that. Um, it talks about, it certainly had an influence on me at that time because like, I was probably one of the first kids in Wales to get a sky dish and pick up state of origin and all that sort of stuff, which you could. And then, so I, I until everything became the norm, you seem to be the only one with those ideas, although I thought it was, you know, but um, so that, that was my sort of, I'm reading through it again, and this is nearly 30 years later. I know the rules have changed in the game, but a lot of their um, characteristics for being the head coach of the, of the All Blacks hasn't changed. Um, there's a lot on in discipline here that uh, is quite funny, actually. Andy, Andy Leslie, the 
uh, Martin Leslie, John Leslie's dad, who was a former All Black player and coached number eight. I can remember him during the 80s. And he said, rugby is a physical and aggressive game. If you're not physical and aggressive, then you're second. Reactionary backhanders and punches do sometimes occur. I think we have to accept that that it is where it is to deal with cheating players. But there is absolutely no place in rugby for premeditated punching. In other words, to soften the player up or that sort of thing. And that's where I draw the line. Prevention is always better than cure. And I always attempt to spell out the guidelines very clearly to all my players. So to all, so those sort of situations will not rise. He said there are accounts of action being taken on the field on behalf of their captain who could not be seen talk, taking physical retribution. So what are they saying is the coach and the captain with a be all and end all of their organisation, which is why the All Blacks seem to have always had very, very good captains. And he says an instance here, like Wilson Winneray was bent over many times and I could hear him say, come on, Pine Tree, don't let him do that to me. And Tree would take action. The onus is on the coach and the captain to agree that spirit, ethics and standards required of players and to maintain them. So, look, things have changed. I, I, I understand in, in that sort of thing. But the prerequisite, again, of, the, of, of a nation picking a captain and a coach is a little bit different to us, isn't it, over here? I think, you know, when I was reading it again, I'm like, I read that 30 years ago, but it still applies now. Um, so, yeah, there was that. And then, I, you know, the, the one later was them trying to sell their brand uh, for, 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 for the money, you know. So um, just thoughts on that, really, guys. Uh, thanks, Paul. I, my first question, I, this is one of my favourite stats, so I love sharing it, but I, I probably need to find another one soon because I keep sharing <coughs> on a format like this and then everyone knows it. So do you think that probably then reinforces maybe the point that in terms of all of the football and rugby World Cups for men changes slightly if you go to the women, but how many do you think have been won by a national team without a coach or a head coach from their country? So how many foreign coaches have ever won a football or rugby World Cup? I don't think there's anyone who's won a rugby World Cup. Ten points for Paul because no one. And I ju and I just wonder if you think about that alignment between the culture, understanding your players, everything else that goes along with that, and and the relationship. I, ju I is there something to be said for you need a coach from from that country that aligns with all of that stuff to to be successful. And there's clearly been lots of other very successful coaches. I just think that's really telling that no foreign coach has ever won a World Cup. And I, I can't quite put my finger on why. Ian, jump in. Yeah, I was just going to say, Eddie Jones made that statement, didn't he, that that's why he needed Steve Bothwick and people like that within with England, because him standing in front of the players and saying you're playing for the badge and holding it, everybody's going, you're an Australian. Whereas Steve Bothwick standing there and saying it, suddenly he's a proud Englishman and, and it was different. And yeah, I, I, what Paul was saying there about uh, the coach, it took me back to um, talking to CPD, uh, a conference at the Lensbury Club where Dean Ryan uh, was the after-dinner speaker and uh, I was fortunate to sit next to him and we were talking about the, the role of, of a coach and, and he was saying that um, you're not, you're not the all-knowing guru, 
You know, he doesn't stand there and tell Phil Vickery how to scrummage. He may suggest and cajole, but ultimately, Phil Vickery is the man who's going to lead that scrum. And with the line-out, Alex Brown, it shows you how long ago it was, Alex Brown with the line-out, and he said he'd have his ideas. And that was very much, it sat with me. Um, and I remember being at the Pirates and, and the boys getting a little bit frustrated. My phrase used to be, right, entertaining now, boys. I've got an idea. Let's see if it works. And sometimes you could see their eyes going, oh, my good God, what is he talking about? And and some of them actually worked. And you're like, yeah, OK. But that's where it comes back to, you know, what, what Paul was saying about there. The, the players want a coach who knows a bit but doesn't try and be the, the all, you know, one position specific and know everything about that. Just a general idea. But ultimately, it's player-led. Uh, and they're the guys on the field. They're the guys who are living it and doing it week in, week out. Um, and I think that's where I think sometimes coaches get caught up. They're not prepared to say, actually, I don't know. Why, why didn't you show me? Um, and that, that is quite a brave coach who does that. And maybe quite an experienced coach who does that, which is quite ha- happy in themselves to say, yeah, I don't know. You know why, why, why is the loose head killing me in scrum? I have no idea. I would never do. I would never do. Yes, why didn't you go have a chat with him in the bar? Buy him a pint and he'll tell you why why you left yourself wide open. And and, that, and with youngsters as well, especially those guys who haven't played a lot of club rugby, that's the bit they find difficult as well, is actually talking to their opposite number because they're too busy wanting to drink a protein shake and, and see the video rather than just buy the old the 35-year-old tight at a pint and he'll tell you exactly why he crucified you. Uh, and I think that's the bit where, um, you know, Again, back to education, but education of players from players is, is, is being lost a little bit out of the game as well. Um, and it was interesting because I'd read that book as well, Paul. Uh, I may have to dig it out again because I haven't read it for a long time. And everybody harps back to legacy. But, I'll, but that was probably the first fly in the fly on the wall book that came out inside the All Blacks. It certainly resonates here with, um, you know, have, have we modelled our coaching on that? type of thing I was, as you know there were certain things in there that I'm yeah I can see that I've done that I can see that I've done that and there was others where you cringe at because you haven't done it you know yeah. and different situations I do you know, look you know it's uh, you virtually lead your rugby country when you're there aren't you and you know you've only got to look at their past sort of uh, all black coaches who support that guy as well. Yeah. You know, you've probably got a lot over with us. It's not a lot of support once you've finished your job, you know, uh, in any of our nations, you know. But um, it, it was interesting reading it straight again. And it, it was all I thought 30 years ago, really. But how do I take my... Um, it was similar at the time. And Aussie Rugby League came in and everyone, like, I got home from work. One day, work, I was working, you know, it was like going from work one day in about 1987. And uh, there was this game on on Sky, and it was like in this dust bowl with a real brown ball with two dark brown uh, tops to the bottom yeah. top of the ball. And I mean, what game was that? I thought it was like Aussie rules, and it was Australian Rugby League, and they were just hitting 10 yeah. bells out of each other. And... Um, I started to get into it, and that was another sort of coaching, learning uh, thing for me. And then you came across 
There's a guy called Jack Gibson, who was big at that time in innovation. He used to go into America and learn off Lombardi and, and, uh, and coaches in American football and come back with his own. So all those sort of things I used to look into and, you know, obviously try and implement as much as you, as you could. But it was all stuff that's been recommended these days. You know, you look back at those sort of things and you think, Christ, that was, that was good at the time, you know? Yeah. Quick, quick fire round. Give me one thing. You're talking about going in cycles and, the, you know, nothing's new. Give me one thing you'd love to see come back into the game that, you know, we've not seen in a while. What, uh, what Rucking. Like proper rucking, old school. Shoot. Proper rucking. Proper, proper rucking where you get pain in the shower later because you're on the wrong side of the ball. Then you'd get some quick ball for some backs to do some stuff. Nice. I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see the breakdown cleared up and actually players staying on feet. You know, um, I think off 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 feet, um, pass the ball, which you know, which seems to be the what you can get away with now. Um, I'd just love to see people, guys just 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 stay on their feet um, and and just clear clear that up. And I'd I'd really like to see what what the professional game looking a little bit closer to what the grassroots game looks like because at the minute they're becoming two almost entirely different sports. Yeah. Um, and, and I'd and I'd like to see some just a little bit more consistency of what happens on what happens on the local club on a Saturday afternoon actually looks like the same sport that they then watch on BT that evening. Nice. I like that. Go on, Paul. Middle third of the field between 22s. Uh, no full penalties to touch, or if you want to, any penalty, it's not your ball at the line-out. So it would encourage tap penalties again to get the ball in, uh, in play. Fantastic. Love to see all of them. My one. Sorry, so it's just just on the racking. There's enough, there's enough cameras now. No, that there's no stamping. So I think you'd actually have proper racking. You know, going past the ball and pushing people back, uh, which then feeds into needles, keeping people on their feet. Because once you're at the bottom of ruck and you've had a bit of shoe, you don't want to be there again. You'll be at my stag here now. Yes. Pontypool <laughs> <laughs> Park. <laughs> oh yeah. And I see less red cards as well. You know, I think that needs to be the. We talked about this on the State of the Game podcast. Just, just that desperation for players that being told or coached that can't work out which. Just to, if um, if you're going off your, or you're going to lose the ball, you just dive off your feet. You know, and that I think that's the bit that's got to go. Um, yeah. Well, ben, ben Ryan talks about you know the clear out and how dangerous that is now because the players just put their heads far too low and, and in a in a real dangerous position. Well, if you if you're not going to be in that position, you're probably not, you know, Jack Willis and people like that, unfortunately, really serious injuries uh, in that Jacqueline position. Yeah. I think my one would be the return of a back row move or lots of back row moves. I just think, you know, scrums are a great platform and I, it just breaks me. We don't see anything come. You might see one eight pick every now and again, but you don't run anything off it. And I just think it's a huge missed opportunity, really. So, Remember when the six could leave the scrum? <laughs> Richie McCall did that for years, but it was just never legal. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not even good. Yeah, you can see a play, you can see like a, a right or a left sided play now with a six leaving early, coming up and around and taking the ball off the nine. You know, yeah. six could always leave back in the day. 
there's a lot of changes, isn't there? That, you should uh, look forward to those days, Paul, didn't you? Oh, it was great. <laughs> it's spread on the 10, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rift. Yeah, yeah. Love it. Uh, well, people used to say, sort of back in the era again, you know, because how did you get on against your 10? And we say we never saw him. He was just there seven <laughs> all the time. <laughs> just there seven. That's like I got... I got friends now that used to be terrible enemies back in the day. I think that's what that's what the lockdown has done. Like you know, it's uh, everybody's made someone. <laughs> uh, guys, we'll uh, we'll finish this off with your recommendations. So just hit us up with what you're suggesting to uh, for people to look at. So Ian, we'll come to you first. Um, I've I've got a couple. Um, one is uh, the Championship Clubs podcast, which is just a new venture. Um, Alan Paver was on week one and, and phenomenal. Really, really great guy. Know him personally. Obviously, Alex Davis is done week two. I'm going to catch up on that one. Um, and then a couple of others to, to recommend. I'm working through 80% Mental, uh, which is a, is a good podcast. I've just started into that. That's been recommended to me. Um, and Running on Emotion, Alistair Eakin, who I think is a a good commentator and presenter, uh, and this pride, Lawrence Delalio. I think if you were going to have one word to describe Lawrence, it would be pride. Um, so that's a really good listen if you get to the chance to. Fantastic. Thank you. The the 80% mentor boys have both, um, he and Hugh have both been on there on a few weeks ago. So that's, uh, yeah, their, their class is, is really, cool. really good and they're very funny. So um, Great stuff. Neil, what are you suggesting? Uh, the, the the BF um, uh, analysis, which was a, a line-out analysis, um, I thought was presented superbly this week. Um, really good explanation of uh, understanding space, understanding calling principles, uh, understanding good use of analysis, um, I thought was excellent. Um, and also, you know, just to go back to my point is, I think some of the, the best learning can just be four, four people sat around a table you know, I hope with with rugby clubs opening up again, um, it'll encourage dads to, you know, have have a beer, discuss their sessions, discuss next sessions. People sitting down over coffee tables again, uh, and just talking about coaching. Fantastic. I, I did actually message Brian because I couldn't make the line out one, so he's just worth. He, he has said he is he is going to share it, but there isn't a link at the moment, as far yeah. as I'm aware. So I'll um I'll send that one out when uh, when we get hold of it. But great recommendations, thank you. Uh, Paul, finish us off. Um, what I stated earlier on, really, Phil, um, just on my my all black thing, I, I looked at something earlier on in the week, and it just tied in with the all black brand, really. Um, and it was the sale of their commercial rights, um, but it needs um, all black players' support. So it's a bit of a, a question for, for all, all you guys now. With this, um, the stuff that's coming to England at the moment, the C, CBC, is it? The players have got no say on that, have they, at all? Not through the PRL, I don't think they have, have they? So in New Zealand, obviously, because they were different when the game went pro over there, the, the, the New Zealand players have got a big say in this. And um, it's quite interesting. The article, I think, was from um, Matthew Syed in, um, in the Times. We likened it to, to the Muhammad Ali 
um, brand that became completely different um, right up until his death and is still going now. Um, but it was obviously based on a lot of money that would help his family and everything. But it, 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 it was completely different from when it uh, started in the beginning. The All Black, it, it could be exactly the same now where they're saying this private equity firm coming in and, and selling, um, they're selling 50% of their commercial rights to Silver Lake uh, equity firm for 235 million. Uh, but the New Zealand Rugby Union require the back end of their players' union to proceed with the deal under the terms of his collective bargaining agreement. The players argued passionately that the proposed deal would damage the fabric of the sport in New Zealand. So it was interesting the way that's going. You know, um, it would obviously be a quick buck for the current players, but further down the line, it'll affect the All Blacks. What they're saying in the article, they'll affect. It'll affect. It uh, the brand completely, you know, over a period of time. Just thoughts on that, really, boys. Great stuff. Thanks, Paul. Good recommendation. Um, right, I'm going to round up the roundup. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to my guests for their time and contribution to a, a really enjoyable and excellent discussion. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like and share. As always, I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. Bye.